0: Christ Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Paul's magisterial epistle to the Romans. Uh, We are in our 55th week in this uh, this wonderful book, and I'll invite you to please stand as we read read together Romans 7 and verse 12. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant and efficacious authoritative word. Romans 7 and verse 12 and for for reason of context, I'm going to read verses six through twelve, though we'll be focusing in on verse twelve uh, this morning. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the opening chapter of this epistle, in Paul's greeting, he wrote that he was not only set apart for the gospel of God, but was also eager to preach this gospel to the church at Rome. He was set apart for the gospel, he was also eager to preach. That gospel to the church at Rome. The gospel wasn't just for missionary outreach to reach the lost, but for discipleship in reach to mature the church. One never graduates from the gospel. The gospel must always and forever be clearly proclaimed in the life of the church. It's what it means to make mature disciples. Paul and the other apostles were gospel men. They were set apart for this primary purpose, a purpose that nothing should distract them from. That is, to herald the good news of Jesus Christ from the whole counsel of God, to instruct sinners in the true nature and meaning and implications of the gospel. The good news that is... The operative power of God unto salvation to those who believe. You could say, if someone asks you, what is the power of God? Your response really should be a a knee-jerk one, an impulse to say, it's the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's why it must be preached. It's why when we send missionaries out, that must be the main goal of their mission. To preach the gospel from the whole counsel of God. And by the way, to be be trained to preach that gospel. To receive instruction on how to faithfully carry out a gospel ministry. That is uh, important. If we don't do that, then we we lose the true gospel. Because the gospel is not preached biblically. But the good news of the gospel is the operative power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul and the apostles were not called to preach themselves. There is no power in that. There is no power in men preaching themselves. They were not called to preach the latest cultural ideas and trends in Greek philosophy. There is no power in worldly philosophy. It may be interesting. It may cause some intellectual curiosity. It may be something you want to read and to consider. But there's no power in it. They weren't set apart to fix the corrupt Roman political system. Souls are not saved and nourished through that. Nor did God call them to entertain or amuse their listeners or to be life coaches or therapists or social justice warriors. No, from the very outset of Paul's letter in verse 1, Paul declares that he and his fellow apostles were set apart for what? For the gospel of God, to preach the gospel of God, a gospel that Paul gloried in and would not stop preaching and teaching even though all the powers of the world were trying to stop him from doing so. He kept preaching even at the risk of his own life. For Paul, all things, including his his religious Jewish background and holding to all of the traditions of the law, all things, including the things that he owned, all things, including everything about his life, were rubbish in comparison to this gospel, in comparison to knowing Christ and being found in him, robed in his saving righteousness alone. It's really the heart that every Christian ought to have or should want to have, that we would, could really say from the heart that all things, All things are rubbish in comparison to the gospel, in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul writes in uh, Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Indeed, he writes, "...I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." and be found, now listen, because this really connects to this sermon series and all we've been talking about for the last several weeks, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because that would be a deficient righteousness, That would be a flawed righteousness. That would be a righteousness that's as filthy rags. He says, I don't want that. But that, I want that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. That's what Paul said he wants. He wants this saving righteousness, this righteousness which has been revealed from faith to faith as set forth in the thesis statement of Romans in Romans 1:16 and 17. That's the righteousness, Paul says, that I want. That's the righteousness that I want to be found in, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ, not, not my own righteousness. which comes to my failed attempts of obeying the law. Paul has been glorying in and defending and teaching this saving righteousness for the last seven chapters of Romans. And it's clear, beloved, that the primary aim of Paul's discipleship strategy of his bringing God's people to spiritual maturity to make them faithful Christians and busy Christians and serving Christ is to preach teach, defend, and to clarify this gospel. The gospel, therefore, is not just for evangelism. It's not just for foreign missionaries uh, that they would reach the lost. No, it is the power of God unto salvation through which God's Spirit unites sinners to Jesus and thus saves them, reconciles them, justifies them, adopts them, sanctifies them, preserves them, and one day brings them to heaven. That's what God does through this power called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is, quote, eager to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. And a crucial part of that gospel preaching is distinguishing between the law and the gospel. And demonstrating that it is through promise that we are saved, not through law. It is through promise that we are saved, not through law. It is through faith in Christ that we are saved, not through our works. But Paul is laboring to help everyone to understand. That our right standing with God has been purchased for us through Christ's righteous life and atoning death, and not through our good works, not through our good intentions, not through our moral strivings, not through our family connections, not through our church membership, not through all these things which throughout the ages people have been holding on to as their way of going to heaven one day. But you see... As we look at Paul, as we understand Romans, as we understand the scriptures in whole, we see that they all point to the one answer to our problem of sin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a pastor from Heidelberg, Germany here this morning, and so I thought it would be appropriate to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the most famous uh, uh, questions and answers in the Heidelberg Catechism is question and answer 60, question and answer 60. This is as true now as it was when it was written in 1563 and first expounded upon in Heidelberg, and it is, was as true then as it was in the first century when Paul taught these truths. The question that comes, which is the most important question in the world, how are you righteous before God? Christian, how are you righteous before God? Answer, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, praise God for this, nevertheless, nevertheless, Without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. And as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me if only i accept this gift with a believing heart what would what could motivate you more to serve the lord what could motivate you more than to, to want to obey god's law than to know that Christ has obeyed it perfectly for you and you are reconciled to God. You are accepted into the beloved. No one could ever remove you from his presence. Your place in heaven is as secure as Christ's place in heaven because you're in him. You're united to him. His righteousness is now yours. And you stand before God justified, no longer standing before God in the tattered robes of your your. Your, your self-importance and your good works and, and, and your moral strivings and your good intentions, which none of which reaches the requirements of God's law. But now you stand robed in the righteousness of Christ. Your sins were nailed to the cross and you no longer bear them. What glorious motivation for living a thankful, holy life in God's service. And for his glory. I could stand up here and give you 20 rules that you need to follow right now. Apart from the gospel. I could rail on and try to make you feel guilty about all kinds of things. I could stand up here and talk about politics and talk about how we're so superior to all those sinners out there. None of it would bring you any closer to God. None of it would sanctify you. In fact, quite the opposite in many respects. But when the gospel is faithfully preached, and Paul understood this, this is why he labored so in the book of Romans with all of these arguments, all of these important points that he is making. It's to bring God's people to the realization that we need Christ, we need the gospel, not just for our justification, but also for our sanctification and our growth in grace. We are now in chapter 7, of course, in Romans, and Paul has been laboring to teach and defend this truth, especially because there were those inside the church and outside the church who were challenging and questioning Paul's teaching. Indeed, his critics were challenging his teaching on justification apart from the law, that we are justified apart from the works of the law, like he said in in, in Romans 3, verse 20. That no man is justified by the works of the law. And some were pushing back against that. They were saying that his views would necessarily encourage lawlessness, that it would encourage licentious, loose living. Because if you're justified through the work of Christ alone, and you stand before God just, never to be separated from him, and the law does not save you, and no longer are you under the crushing demands of the law for your salvation, then you're going to take advantage of that in a sinful way and take for granted God's grace and you're going to despise the law. And we touched upon this last week in some detail as I preached through verses 7 through 11. Yes, these detractors of Paul, they believe that Paul was teaching antinomianism and that it would give God's people a contemptuous and dismissive view of the law. But that was not what Paul was teaching at all. And by the way, some do teach this. Some do teach a view of the law that is absolutely wrong and does encourage antinomianism. Some who have no use for a third use of the law, which we will talk about in a few minutes. But Paul was not doing this at all. And he answers his critics on these charges in chapters 5 and 6 of Romans. And we won't rehearse those here now, though you can go back and study those passages. So if obedience to the law doesn't give sinners a right standing with God, what role does the law have? Well, that's the subject Paul has taken up in chapter 7. In the opening verses of chapter 7, Paul illustrates that we no longer relate to the law like a deceased husband to whom we are no longer bound. We no longer relate to the law because the law is like a deceased husband to whom we are no longer bound. And because we are no longer bound to our former husband, a husband that demanded perfection from us, we can be joined to a new husband, namely Jesus Christ. In Christ, Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 7, we have died to The law and its crushing demands of perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. We have died to the law, in other words, as a covenant of works. We have died to the law as a covenant of works. We don't, again, wake up in the morning thinking, okay, I have to obey the law perfectly today to be accepted by God. We don't live in that space anymore because we are in Christ. Because he has saved us from that. If you're not in Christ, that's all you have are the crushing demands of the law and you must obey. And by the way, it's impossible. It's impossible. And those who do think it's possible have a low view of the holiness of God and a high view of themselves and a low view of the sinfulness, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I had one believer tell me a while back that Christians no longer commit sin. They just make mistakes. It's about a form of perfectionism. What you have to do in order to, to, to do gymnastics, to change what Paul is saying, you have to, to say things like that. But we have died to the law as a covenant of works, and we are now united to Christ, the one who obeyed the strict and unbending requirements of God's holy law in our place. And then as a perfect, holy, righteous sacrifice, he laid his life down on Calvary, on the cross, to atone for our sins. And so Paul writes in verse 6 of our passage in chapter 7, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written law or written code. In this new section then, in verses 7 through 12, the apostle anticipates yet another critique. In verse 7, he asks, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? That the law is sin? By no means. In other words, Does Paul's view of the law imply that the law is bad, that the law is somehow sinful? Paul states emphatically by no means, and then, as we saw last week, proceeds to explain how sin uses the law to deceive us and ultimately to kill us. The law exposes our sin, it aggravates our sin, it arouses sin, Just as when someone tells you not to do something, your first impulse is often, I want to do that. Don't cross this line. The law reveals our need. But the law itself is not sin a thousand times. No, the law itself is not bad. No, as we will learn this morning, the law is holy, righteous, and and good. And it's why the psalmist declared in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. There are some who teach a form of antinomianism where all they do is talk about how bad the law is. And what they're doing is they're giving some version of, of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. And that is that the law exposes our sin. The law arouses sin in us. The law, uh, it reveals to us how exceedingly sinful our sin is in comparison to God and his holiness. And so it, it's, there is a negative aspect to that. But the law itself is not negative. But the way they speak about it to the exclusion of ever talking about the law as Righteous and good and holy and as a guide for the Christian life, one's view of the law then begins to be negative. And then you have what's called antinomianism. And uh, one of our own ministers, I will not say not in this church, uh, thankfully, but one of the ministers in the PCA who is teaching a form of this and it was getting very popular. And there was even a giant conference that was teaching this hugely negative view of the law without any kind of third use of the law or positive use of the law in the Christian life, well, you guessed it, ended up crashing and burning in a serious and scandalous way. And one wonders whether it was the life that was forming the theology or the theology that was forming the life or some combination of both. But Paul writes here, and you can follow along in the outline in your bulletin if you would like. Paul states that the law is holy, righteous, and good. That's the first point. Look at me again at verse 12, a kind of summary statement for this section in verses 7 through 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now let me ask you, dear believer, is this how you view the law? When you, when you hear the law read, when you recite the Ten Commandments, when you, when you think about these uh, imperatives of Scripture, is this how you think of them? Is this how you think of God's commandments, as holy and righteous and good? If not, you should. In fact, you must. You must. Why? Because the moral law and commandments derive from God. God's law is an expression of His holiness, righteousness, or justice, and goodness. The moral law and His commandments derive from God. We learn of God's holiness through His holy law. We learn of God's justice through His just and righteous law. We learn of his goodness through his good law and good commandments. If we did not possess God's law, if if he hadn't revealed his law to us, we wouldn't have such clarity on his holiness and his justice and his goodness. In Isaiah 6, we hear the angel voices crying out, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We hear Hannah saying in 1 Samuel that there is no one holy like the Lord. What does this mean? That God is holy. It means that he is other. That he is set apart. That he is perfect in his essence. In his being. And in all of his ways. He is holy holy. Holy, holy, there is no sin or deceit or darkness in God. It's what we experience in our lives, darkness and deceit and falsehood and, and, and not even being able to trust our own hearts so much of our lives. So it's hard for us to comprehend this, this perfect, pure holiness Dear ones, this holiness requires holiness of his moral creatures. How could holiness not require holiness? His holiness requires holiness in his creatures. Indeed, because God is holy, he has a holy revulsion towards sin. Sin is wicked rebellion against God's holiness. The law given to us by God is a mirror of God's holy character, standards. And so when we look into that mirror, what is reflected back to us, is not only God's holiness, but our sin, our imperfections, the sins of our minds, the sins of our hearts, the sins of our members, one commentator puts it this way, quote, "For Paul as for Jesus, it is God's law, deriving from him and bearing the unmistakable marks of its origin and authority. For Paul as for Jesus, it is God's law, deriving from him and bearing the unmistakable marks of its origin and authority." End quote. The law is not only holy, it is also righteous, or you could translate it just. The law is just. That is, like God, it does not bend, favor, or excuse. God does not grade on a curve. It's one reason among many why we all need to be sitting under the preaching of the word of God. Why is that? Because if the minister is doing what he's supposed to do and expositing the text we, we recognize the truth and we're not sort of grading ourselves on a curve. If we just had quiet times the rest of our lives and we re- read the Bible, we would be, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna kind of skip over that verse. I'm gonna kind of just move over that section. That kind of gets a little too much in my face. Well, in the preaching of the word, it just comes and we all have to hear it. We all have to receive it and we all have to deal with it. And so God, so it's an expression, the law is an expression of God's holiness and His righteousness and justice. The law, like God, is perfectly just. It is perfectly fair, as it were. As Paul communicated in chapter 2, Romans 2, 6 and 11, he writes, quote, He will render to each one according to his works. God shows no Partiality. God's law and commandments are righteous. They are just, even as God is righteous and just, seated on his throne, as the psalmist says, of righteousness and judgment. Thirdly, Paul writes that the law and commandments are good. Why? You guessed it, because God is good. Because God is good, and the commandments, come from God. God's goodness is mirrored in the law. We see God's goodness when we see the law. So that's the first thing we must see, dear ones, is God's law and His commandments are holy and righteous or just and good because they derive from God. They can't be anything but holy, righteous, and good. Secondly, I want us to notice that the law and commandments are for the good of humanity. Paul asks the rhetorical question, is the law sin? Of course not. By no means. May it never be. The law is not sin. The law was not given to harm us, but to help us. When the law is cherished and the law is followed, blessings follow. When it is disdained, the opposite is true. We see this in our own society. Of course, our nation was founded on Christian principles. Uh, Churches were planted, denominations grew, and there was uh, within our culture, really, uh, up until about 30 years ago, a a kind of of, uh, uh, Christian base. And so if you walk down the street, say 30 years ago, and you tapped on the shoulder of someone and, uh, and, and said, pointed to a woman and said, is that a man or a woman, you would have had the same response from 99.999% of everyone. If you would have asked, they would say, that's a, that's a woman. If you would have asked, what is marriage 30 years ago? And then all the way back to 1776. of people would have said, well, marriage is a a covenant before God uh, between a man and and a woman. Uh, Up until uh, the mid-20th century, if you were to talk about the dignity of human life, whether an unborn child or a newly born child or uh, a, uh, uh, a child that is suffering from some malady, or uh, an older person who is uh, has lost so much of the quality of life they would have said they would have defended that today things are different so what is what has changed well a lot has changed we could talk about that for forever but one thing we know is true that the law has been disdained the law of god has been thrown aside. And by the way, not just in our culture, but in the churches. It's why the Ten Commandments are in every Christian catechism, because it's a part of the discipleship of the church to understand the role of the law and the guidance of the law for the Christian life. The law and the commandments are not for the, to be harmful to us, but to, to bless us, to bless the world. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship God according to Scripture, without images. Do not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your parents and all authority. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not covet. These These commands, dear ones, are meant for our good. And yet we have chosen another way as humanity. We've said, no, we will worship many gods. We will worship them in the way that we want. We will curse God's name. We will desecrate the Sabbath. We will not honor our parents or the authority over us. We will murder, if not with our hands, in our hearts. We will be engaged in all kinds of wicked sexual immorality. We will steal. We will lie. We will covet. We will do all of these things that your law has told us not to do. And we think we're the better for it, and then we look around and we see that we are not. And so the law is given as a deriving from God, a good God, a righteous God, a just God, and given to humanity for our good, for our blessing. So The law is not sin. No, the law is holy and righteous and good. And understanding the distinction between the law and the gospel and the way that the law functions in the Christian life has been a major point of confusion in the church throughout the ages. That's why, like Romans, our Reformed confessions take so much time to clarify this gospel. Well, the second point I want to make this morning is that the function of the law is for both the unregenerate and the regenerate, for the non-Christian and the Christian, and our own Westminster Larger Catechism clearly sets this forth. Again, a summary of biblical teaching. What does it say about how the law functions for the unbeliever? Well, first of all, as it states there in your outline, it's to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come. The law is for the unbeliever, that they would see the law, that they would recognize this holy law comes from a holy God and they are accountable to this God and that their conscience would be awakened as to the sinfulness of sin, as to their, their broken relationship with God. Some people say, I don't have a relationship with God. Oh, yes, everyone has a relationship with God. It's either a reconciled one or an unreconciled one. Either you are in Christ or not. But this is is what it does. It awakens the conscience to flee from God's wrath to come. Secondly, what it does for the unregenerate is to drive them to Jesus Christ. To drive them to Jesus Christ. You see, once again, what this law does is it exposes our sin. It exposes our guilt. It exposes our wickedness. It awakens our conscience to all of these things. It shows us the utter sinfulness of sin in the light of God's perfect holiness and it, it, by God's grace, drives them, we pray, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has Christ done? Well, here's the thing. The law is righteous, the law is holy, and the law is good. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Jesus Christ is the holy one. Jesus Christ is the one who is good. And he said... There is no one good but God, and He was God and is God. And so as the righteous, holy, and good one, He comes to earth born of a virgin, as we confessed earlier in the Nicene Creed, and He lives a perfect, sinless life in perfect, sinless conformity to the law. He lives in personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to the law, fulfilling all the strict requirements, fulfilling all the demands, and he does this for you and for me, in your place, in my place. And God does not grade on a curve, but Jesus gets a perfect score. How great would it be, kids, if there was a student in your class who got 100s every time, and you got to to get whatever grade they got. How great would that be? That's what's happened to us. In Christ, we have the perfect grade because He accomplished it for us in His perfect life. He, he fulfilled those requirements in our stead. And then, as that perfect lawkeeper, He needed to do something else in order to accomplish our redemption, to to finish our redemption. He had to pay for the sins that we committed. He had to pay for our lawlessness, our unrighteousness, our unholiness, our lack of goodness. He had to receive God's just wrath for those things if we could have a right standing with God. And that's the great exchange. He receives all of our sin, that giant load of sin on the cross. It's, it's nailed to the cross. He suffers and dies for it and receives and drinks down the very wrath of God. And we receive, by grace through faith, his righteousness. And so God is just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He does not grade on a curve. He doesn't lower his requirements. And so he is both merciful, and just at the same time. Uh, Don't you love um, the hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder? And it's written by John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. And this hymn is is a commentary on that amazing grace. And listen to what he says. Let us wonder... Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Justice smiles and it asks no more of you because Christ paid your debt in full and satisfied God's requirements. And in him, you are counted. You are declared righteous. Not because you have a righteousness of your own that's worthy. Oh, no but because you are robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are in him. That's, what, that's the function of the law for the unregenerate. To awaken the conscience and to drive them to Christ. What a gift. Thirdly, its usefulness is the other sad side, is to lead them inexcusable and under the curse. You see, the law also leaves people inexcusable. If they choose to continue to believe the lives of the world, to embrace the idols of the world that keep promising you such blessing but keep withholding that blessing from you, that law becomes that which leaves you inexcusable and under the curse. What's the function of the law for the believer, though? That's the third point and the final point. The function of the law for the regenerate. Again, this comes from Westminster Larger Catechism, number 97, which I'll encourage you to look over these things later this afternoon. The function of the law for the regenerate is to awaken the conscience and to direct us to Christ. Same thing. It's to awaken the conscience. Even as Christian believers in union with Christ, we can find ourselves being drawn back to old habits, old patterns of thinking, letting the old man rise up. We need to be reminded from the law of these, the sinfulness of sin, and it awakens our consciences. It directs us to Christ yet again. It also, secondly, shows how much Christians are bound to Christ for fulfilling the law. It shows how much we are bound to Christ. Again, that language, bound, it's Romans 6 language. We're no longer enslaved to sin and the law. We're enslaved to Christ. We're bound to Him, the one who fulfilled the law for us. Thirdly, it shows how much Christians are bound to Christ for enduring the curse of it for them. Christ became a curse for us, that we would know his mercy. So, we Christians are bound to Christ for enduring the curse of the law for us. And then the fourth point, which is the one I want to focus on for just a couple of minutes, and that is to provoke Christians to a life of gratitude leading to loving, childlike obedience. And this is the third, the so-called third use of the law of God. As Christians united to Christ, no longer wed to the law, no longer under the law's crushing demands for salvation as a means to salvation, we still love the law and use the law, now listen, as a guide for the Christian life. The law is holy, Righteous and good. It is to be cherished in the Christian life. Not as a means to salvation, but as a field manual for the Christian life. If someone were to become a Christian and say, oh, no, now, now what do I do? Keep abiding in Christ and believing the gospel. And here's God's law. And this is how you can serve him. And God's law is not just the Ten Commandments. It's all the imperatives that you find in the New Testament. All of them. It's a part of the law. It's an instruction manual for pleasing and glorifying God in this sinful and broken world. And once again, as we think of the the view from 30,000 feet of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11 is is filled with indicatives, that is teaching us about the holiness of God, uh, the universal depravity and sinfulness of man, uh, the the work of Christ, uh, justification, sanctification, adoption, election, all of these things are a part of chapters 1 through 11, and then you get to chapter 12. Turn there with me. Turn there with me to chapter 12, where there is a massive division, in a way, in this this letter. And you see the word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now look there, by the mercies of God. In other words, by everything I have just taught you in chapters 1 through 11. It could say by the gospel. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, not by legalisms, not by by guilt-ridden teaching or preaching, but by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, it's describing God's laws, describing God's characters, describing how we are called to live. And then, in, interestingly, in verses 3 through 8, he talks about, the centrality of the ministry of the local church and a Christian's involvement in it as the first thing out of the chute when Paul starts talking about the Christian life. But then look with me at verse 9. It's like a a machine gun, in a good way, shooting out all of these commands, one after another, just getting peppered, and they're all good, righteous, and holy and teaching us how to live the Christian life. Verse 9. With those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is not a formula for getting saved. This is not a recipe for salvation. This is given to you in the nail-scarred hands of Christ to say, I have died for you as your righteous substitute. You are united to me. You are reconciled to God. You are right with God. Now live this way. I understand you will live imperfectly because you're still fighting against indwelling sin. But this is how God has called you to live. Why? Because he is holy and he wants his children to be holy. And so we grow in holiness. Not adding to the grounds of our salvation but as the fruit of saving faith, as the fruit of a thankful heart, as the fruit of a man or woman or boy and girl that loves the Lord and wants to please Him. And so God graciously gives us not only indicatives, but also imperatives. Praise God for His Word. So as we close, just a couple of words of encouragement. Let us understand and apply a right use of the law of God. This is important if we're going to have a right view of the gospel. The law was given by God to expose our sin and to arouse our sin. St. Augustine wrote, quote, Man needed to be shown the foulness of his malady. The law was given to show us our need, our profound need of a Savior, a rescuer, a mediator, a champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so secondly, dear ones, believe and cherish and rest in and teach and share this gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. Let us teach it to our children. May it be central in the life of this church and any church we seek to plant or to support let us believe and cherish and rest in and teach and share this gospel finally i want to conclude with a quote from john owen's glory of of christ it's a passage in a book that has formed and shaped my own piety like like none other listen to what john owen writes as he meditates on this gospel how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is in the eyes of believers. When Adam sinned, he stood ashamed, afraid, trembling, as one ready to perish forever under the severe displeasure of God. Death was what he deserved, and he fully expected the sentence to be immediately carried out. In this state, the Lord Christ, in the promise comes to him and says, by the way, not only to him, but to you and me, poor creature, how terrible is your condition? How deformed you are now. What has become of the beauty, the glory of that image of God in which you were created? See how you have taken upon yourself the monstrous shape and image of Satan. And yet your present sorrow, your physical return to dust and darkness is in no way to be compared with what is to follow. Eternal distress lies before you. But now, look up and behold me. You will have a glimpse of what infinite wisdom, love, and grace have purposed for you. Do not continue to hide from me. I will take your place. I will bear your guilt and suffer that punishment which would sink you eternally into the hideous depths of hell. I will pay for what I never took. I will be made a curse for you so that you may be eternally blessed. In the same vein, the Lord Christ speaks to all convicted sinners when he invites them to come to him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous gospel. We thank you that in Christ we are redeemed. That in him we are no longer under the crushing demands of the law for our salvation, but we are under grace, united to Christ, set free from the power and reign of sin, Sin no longer reigns, though it does remain in us, and we thank you for your spirit and your word, in which you through which you sanctify us. We thank you that in Christ we are declared righteous and just in your sight, and that in Christ you are transforming us day by day through the means of grace into the image of your Son. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we would cherish this gospel, that we would teach it to our children, that we would defend it and proclaim it in our church and in our neighborhoods and in the nations. And, oh Lord, may we remember all that Christ has done for us that we would consider ourselves and believe ourselves to be bound to him in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you, beloved,